Welcome to the Kids Corner, where we explore sensory processing, development, and play with purpose as it pertains to eating, sleeping, playing, and growing. On this podcast, we will educate you on the lesser-known topics, give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice, and provide resources for families and caregivers. We are your hosts... I'm Bean, the co-founder of ReU and a recovering paraplegic. And I'm Nancy, a kinesiologist specializing in pediatrics, facilitating learning and development through movement and play therapies. We're back here with one of our pediatric specialists, Brooklyn, and we're going to be talking about cognitive expectations. So welcome, Brooklyn. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Yeah, thanks. We're happy to have you back. So I guess, yeah, Nancy and Brooklyn, let's start with what is cognition and what does it look like? So I understand cognition to be when an individual has some sort of understanding of themselves or their environment, and this can be memory, language, attention, sensation and perception, or learning. Yeah, I mean, cognition is a really big and broad topic. So I mean, just to narrow it down a little bit more, we're just going to give a couple definitions that we can really use to hone in and really define what cognition is. So it's a mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. So like Brooklyn just listed, she listed the six main types of cognitive processes. So language, right, the form of communication we use each day, it can be verbal, it can be nonverbal as well. Attention, being able to concentrate on one task or item or thing at a time. Memory, so this is the storage of knowledge. Perception, so that can be perception of yourself or your surroundings. Learning, that's just the act of absorbing or taking in new knowledge and turning it into a skill or just retaining that knowledge. And then higher reasoning is the the sixth one. I don't know if Brooklyn mentioned that one, but the executive functioning. So that's that problem solving. That's that ability to do complex tasks as well. So those are the different cognitive processes. And then we have cognitive skills. So you can see how cognition is really just this big umbrella term for all the different ways in which we kind of separate ourselves as the human race from other species. We have this complex thought process that goes on. So cognitive skills are the essential qualities that your brain utilizes to think, listen, learn, understand, justify, question, and pay close attention. So there's so many different elements to this cognition. So we have cognitive processes and we have cognitive skills that are under the umbrella of cognition. So in essence, cognition is just the ability to perceive react, process, understand, store, retrieve information, make decisions, and produce appropriate responses. So cognition is a huge realm of so many different ways in which we interact with that environment. So I did want to talk a little bit more about cognition, just in terms of the developmental process and the kind of ages as we grow, right? So these are what we call cognitive milestones. So I know a lot of people are going to be familiar with developmental milestones. So for the physical ones anyway. So rolling, sitting, crawling, walking. But we have cognitive milestones, which just represent going from a passive to an active individual as we go. So a lot of the time we dismiss the remarkable skills of infants and young children until we don't see the typical development in process. And we have an atypical developing child, we start to question to understand more what's missing. So let's talk about it in just in terms of milestones. So we have zero to three months. Here, the 
cognitive developmental milestones are, are surrounding exploring the basic senses and learning more about the body and the environment. So they're doing stuff more what we consider reflexive movements or reflexive actions. So when you stroke a baby's face, they're going to turn towards it to start sucking, right? So we have a lot of those infant reflexes that are producing, but they're still exploring the environment with reflexes. So we have to remember that reflexes are initially the first way children start to explore their environment as well. Uh, now they're going to start detecting differences in sounds, in pitch, in volume. They're going to start focusing on objects, and particularly the caregiver's face, right? So they're going to start developing all of their senses. So that's auditory, visual, that's smell, that's taste. So they're, they're distinguishing all the basic senses in those first three months. And then we're going from three to six months. So here we go from not just exploring the senses, but to putting some uh, meaning behind the senses. So here, their visual system, they're starting to imitate facial expressions. This is where you start to see the babies really start smiling back at you. You smile at them and they mimic it back, right? You're sad or you start crying, they start crying, right? So that's where it kind of becomes more fun because they're interacting, they're mimicking a lot of the things in their environment. They're reacting to familiar sounds. They're recognizing faces. They're responding to facial expressions. That's what we're talking about, that smiling. So here they're developing that stronger sense of perception. They're putting that meaning behind what's going on. And then at six to nine months, we're seeing way more of the processing going on. So here we're seeing them trying to understand the impossible task. So there's a ball thrown in and it disappears. And they're looking towards where this ball disappeared. And they're like, what just happened? What did this do? So they're telling the difference between pictures and different objects. And they're relating different things here. So understanding the difference between animate and inanimate objects as well. So they know a person is able to move. They know a chair isn't, right? Or they can see the dog can run, but the book can't. So there's lots of things going on from that six to nine months with that processing and that thinking going through. And then nine to 12 months, we're seeing way more development of not only the physical milestones, but obviously the cognitive milestones as well, too, because they're exploring their world more. So the more you can explore your world, the bigger the cognition tends to develop in terms of the milestones as well. So there's so much that goes on from that zero to 12 months in terms of the processing. And as we know, we see the language and acquisition and everything by one year, you're already having words and babbling and all these mimicry with the vocals as well. Attention develops really early on as well. Memory, we all know kids have really great memories as well. So, you know, if, if you did something once, they're going to say, well, I expect it every time, right? Learning, we think generally learning is innate, but it's the physical processes that also help some of the learning as well. So breaking down cognition, we have so much that goes on and there's so many cognitive milestones that are often overlooked that are actually super important in terms of development as well. So that's kind of what I want to say about cognition. I don't know, Brooklyn, if you had anything else to add into that as well. Nancy, I think that you covered zero to 12 months. That's a big task. It is a big umbrella term, like you said. So I think you said, well. Wow, yeah, thanks, Nancy. You really broke it down there and really gave a good description of what cognition is. So then does cognition look the same in every child, Nancy? 
The short answer is no. I think that's what gives us personality as well. And that's where we have certain aptitudes towards different things. So some children might be better at, let's say, math. So we'll just tackle the school age child, right? So they might be better at math or better at language or better at the physical skills. So everyone's going to have their own set of abilities and greater aptitude toward one area or another. And some kids may struggle in certain areas. Let's say if it's memory. So we know some kids in schools have that photographic memory can really just hone in, memorize it and do really well, whereas other kids will struggle to lock things into their memory and have to study harder and longer in different ways to map it into their brain. So I think the short answer is cognition looks different for everybody. But we do know that every child has the ability to improve their cognitive abilities. Yeah, thank you. I like that answer. So then Brooklyn, we'll go over to you. How is cognitive age different from chronological age? And I guess, like, why is this distinction important to consider when discussing cognition? Yeah, that's a great question. Understanding the difference between cognitive age and chronological age is vital to understanding how to uh, work with a child and understanding what challenges they may have. So cognitive age is also what is called developmental age. So this would be how a neurotypical child will behave or react at that age versus a chronological age, which is our age from birth. So this is important to understand the distinction because we could have a four-year-old who may have the cognitive skills or abilities of a three-month-old. So if we go back to what Nancy was saying about learning these, you may be four years old, but you're still learning the difference between sounds, you're identifying caregivers still. So that's a big jump between a four-year-old who is getting ready to go into kindergarten. So understanding how different those can be helps us meet kids where they're at and understand how they're starting to explore the world. Yeah, and I just want to jump in here and say that your physical development doesn't have to mirror your cognitive development as well, right? So you can be cognitively four years old, physically developmentally three months old, or it could be the reverse as well. So that's just something important to realize is it doesn't have to match your physical development to your cognitive development as well. Thanks for that. I think, yeah, that is really important to note. Okay, so then can every child comprehend their environment? And why or why not? Let's go for Brooklyn first. So it depends. I would say there is some kids who come in who don't interact with their environment yet. And that can be because they just don't realize that they can. That being said, once you show these kids that they can interact with it, their environment, that's when we start to see the learning and the development of that understanding that they can manipulate themselves and they can manipulate themselves within that environment. Yeah, and just to add on to that too, comprehension is on a spectrum. So if we looked at the cognitive development that we talked about earlier on in this episode, we talked about from zero to three months, they're just learning to explore their senses, right? So that in terms is the start of some sort of comprehension. You know, they're starting to, they taste something, they get a response from whatever they're tasting, or they hear something, and they're getting some sort of input. So it may be very minimally comprehending at that point, but they're still getting something, and they're still starting to understand from that zero to three months, right? When we think about comprehension in terms as adults, we think, you know, A plus B equals C, and I do this, and this happens, and I understand 
exactly what's going on in my environment and I'm comfortable in it and I can really learn in this environment. Well, not every kid's going to be at that point, but does every kid have the potential to get there? I believe so. I don't think we'd be in this business if we didn't think kids could get there. And it goes back to a lot of what we say is kids are smarter than you think. They pick up on a lot more. Give them an inch and they will take a mile, right? And they learn to manipulate situations really quick and really early on. And to me, that demonstrates a lot more comprehension because they're understanding how to manipulate situations with, let's say, fake crying or laughing or just hugging or snuggling in. They're learning different things and to the comprehension of that scenario or that situation. But like Brooklyn says, there are kids that come in at different levels of comprehension. One thing I've noticed is that we see that comprehension really start to explode and blossom within a matter of sessions, which is really cool. And I think part of it's just giving the child the opportunity to be heard and to be understood and taking the time to listen. Um, Listening to a child who you wouldn't think can comprehend, I think often negates their ability to, or even their want, their want, not even their ability, their want to interact with you, which then, you know, demonstrates a lack of comprehension, so to speak. I say that in air quotations, because they do have the ability, but they're not showing it to you because you don't believe it. Yep. This is where limiting beliefs come into play, right? Limiting beliefs from parents, from medical community and stuff. And when that's put onto these kids, then they might not show their ability to interact with the environment. And you're right, Nancy, we wouldn't be in this business if we didn't believe that they can recover and then they can actually improve their comprehension and their cognitive ability. Brooklyn, do you have anything to add to that? I do have a quick question for Nancy. Would you say that comprehension begins with the understanding of cause and effect? Is that a nice summary of how we start seeing that growth in comprehension? Yeah, I think so. At its basic form, like when we think about the sucking or rooting reflex, right? You stroke their cheek, they turn and they get milk in essence, right? So they get the bottle, the nipple uh, in their mouth and they start sucking. So it is one sense or one stimulus leads to a certain predictable response. So I think in essence, yes, the cause and effect is kind of the very basic start to that interaction. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so then how is this different than assuming that they can understand what we are asking of them? Or is it different? Nancy, let's go with you. Sure. So in my mind, it's not different. So I treat all kids as if they can understand me, right? You'll notice in my sessions, I talk to you on the same level for every single person, regardless of ability. And over time, they're going to understand or come to understand more of what I'm asking them. Even if in the beginning they don't, I'm assuming they do, which means I'm just setting the bar high and they're coming and rising to it. It might be less words for some kids, but it's still with the understanding on my end that they are going to take and understand it. So, I mean, I believe every kid can understand right and wrong. It's just how you enforce it. Are you setting the boundaries? Are you setting the parameters? Are you being clear with what you're communicating, right? So if you're sending mixed messages where you're saying no, but then you laugh, 
Well, that's not necessarily giving them clear communication. So I think it's how you present your information and whatever it is you're doing, right? So your skill that you're presenting to them is going to have a direct impact on their ability to comprehend, to learn, to develop their cognitive skills and milestones as well. Yeah, Nancy, I think that was a great way to say that. You mentioned that when you're talking to some kids, sometimes when we convey our instructions, with words, you may use less, but we also communicate through our body language, our tone, our pitch, our volume, and our energy. So that comprehension can, can also come from when children learn to understand all of those other factors of our instructions. Yeah, and I think it just brings us back to how many different cognitive skills that we're building, right? Layering that foundation and then the cognitive processing too. Like, within a session, what areas are we tackling? Are we going to be tackling language? Are we going to be tackling learning? Like I feel like within our sessions, we definitely emphasize the learning cognitive portion, the perception, the higher reasoning. We might not necessarily tackle memory, although they have the memory of an elephant, they never forget certain things, right? So I mean, I have some kids that if they really like something, they're going to ask for it every time they come, or you did something one way, they're going to correct you and be like, no, we did it this way last time. So I think that's something that just innate works into our sessions. Attention, definitely something we work on. Language, not necessarily at the forefront, but something that will sneak in and out of our sessions, I find as well. So just bringing it back and tying it into the different areas of processing and skills. And I feel like just layering those foundations throughout our sessions helps bring it full circle. Yeah, I really agree with you there, Nancy. Certainly in every session, building these cognitive skills and these abilities is built in to every session. So I think that is, whether the children realize it or not, it kind of manifests itself along with those physical skills that they're developing. Yeah, I love that. Then what are some cognitive changes we see as we progress through therapy? Maybe Brooklyn, let's start with you this time. Sure, yeah. So Nancy was saying earlier that we do see those cognitive changes within the first few sessions. And I think this is for a number of reasons. Like we mentioned earlier, this can be maybe one of the first few times where a child feels heard and understand and they're willing to open up and show you that side of them. And I feel like in our sessions, it really is Uh, a team effort between the specialist and the child in terms of learning to understand each other. And so it's a learning process of learning how each child communicates a little differently. And so the changes that we can see is maybe a child will understand that they can't throw themselves. So they learn from our reaction to them willfully throwing themselves that, hey, that behavior is not acceptable and it's not tolerated. And if we stay consistent with that, we do see that they start to understand that instruction and then they'll listen to our other instructions and they'll build that trust and understanding of what we're asking and it becomes a a very collaborative process. So understanding instruction and increasing attention, we have seen throughout the sessions is we see that increase in attention and willingness to work with us. So lots of great changes that we see. Yeah, I love what Brooklyn said there about bonding with a child. So creating that rapport and you start to see the different skills come out and blossom. That bond, that trust is just so important, so critical, I find, to really fostering 
development physically and cognitively being that safe place for them to learn and grow just because we know that if you feel safe you're going to learn more and perform better and just to add on to a few other things that as Brooklyn was saying about some of the things we see I mean facial recognition smiling clapping hugging those are just some of the new skills that kids will learn that are just so impactful I find to the families and to the parents around them some kids we've had that have started self-feeding right so it's not necessarily related to the exercises we're doing at all but the cognitive development and aspect is happening through that neuroplasticity we're changing the brain and we don't always know why what's going to change when and that's the beauty of neuroplasticity is we're getting so many other skills and the cognitive aspect right because neuroplasticity isn't just physical development it's also that cognitive so by doing physical tasks we're stretching and growing the brain and then we're getting all these other cognitive skill sets developing and if we just think about learning yes they're learning the physical development skills right so they can go from not crawling to crawling to rolling over so we see all those developmental milestones as well those physical ones but then we see the cognitive ones as well which I think are even more important to the parents right you the kid understands what you're asking of them I mean some of the simple ones for me is I ask a kid to stand up tall and they listen and they pull back right it may, might take two or three instructions but they do it yes what we're doing is really hard but they still listen and they do it or a child's screaming and crying and I put them in my lap and I talk to them and then they settle down and they start listening um, I, one of my favorite is I tell stories and the kid will turn and they'll listen and they'll really engage with the story I'm telling and all the different facial expressions that they're showing as I'm telling this story as they get more invested in it. So there's so many different ways in which we see the cognitive development happen within our sessions. Okay, so then let me ask you this, Nancy. What is different about our therapy that facilitates this change that previously wasn't seen? So I think... Within our center, we really put the child at the center of it. It's, it's very child focused. So we're always talking and engaging with the child. They're never a passive part of our sessions. So I think being that active part and us constantly asking them, engaging with them and really trying to read their body language and fine tune to what their style of communication is, I think really helps pull out more cognitive skills. So we're just really in tune with them. We're not necessarily the only therapy that does this. I think there's other centers that do a great job of this as well. I think all very specialist or therapist specific, right? Really good therapists know how to engage and just be on the level of the child and then pull more out of the child. So I think it's that bond, that trust, building that rapport and believing in the child. I think anybody can do the physical therapy, but not necessarily get the same results as quickly with the cognitive aspect. But that being said, the physical skills go hand in hand with the cognitive skills as well. So I think we're trying to bring the best blend of physical with cognitive. And I think our philosophy of we're going to distract you and entertain you and make this the most positive environment we can, I think really pushes us forward to the next step. Yeah, obviously, I believe that too, because we run our business together. Okay, so then how much cognition and understanding will a child gain? I know this is a hard question to answer. and We usually say we can't guarantee anything. But what could people expect to see? Nancy? I mean, like you said, it is a hard one to try and wrap our heads around only because some of it is limited by diagnosis. And I don't want to say limited. But at the same time, there are certain conditions which 
historically, we know there's a ceiling, especially with things that are more degenerative, right? So that's where I say there's limitations. But with a lot of stuff, there is the unknown, right? So we like pushing the boundaries to see how far we can go. There, There is no hard, fast, you will get this, you won't get this. I think keeping your mind open, being ready for anything and expecting more is really the best attitude to have being that if you think they're not going to get it, then they probably won't because you're not going to push for it. So um, trying to push for as much as you can is always a great place to start. Brooklyn, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that was really well said in terms of we're looking to push and see what we can achieve. And what I will say is, yeah, we don't know what the ceiling is. And like we say often in all of our therapies is we're going to go as far as we can. And that for us looks like holding uh, the kids accountable and being consistent and seeing what comes from that consistency because like we said kids will surprise you and they certainly surprise us every day with both their physical and cognitive abilities to learn and grow so we're always reaching for that ceiling and trying to push it up a little bit higher wherever we can i love that always pushing ceilings not physically pushing ceilings so i guess speaking about ceilings how do we know when we've reached their ceiling and is there such a thing as ceiling when we're talking about recovery So this is a great question. I would probably personally say that there isn't a ceiling. The reason that I say that is because you can always, I feel, you can always deepen understanding. So we said that comprehension is on that scale, that spectrum, that range. So even if our comprehension is maybe stuck at this one part, we can still build and deepen that understanding. And everyone can learn and grow. Even us as adults, we're constantly building and deepening our understandings. So I don't like saying that there is a ceiling. That's uh, my personal preference. Don't want to put any limiting beliefs on those kids. Yeah, I 100% agree with Brooklyn. There is no ceiling. It's just like with our adults, like if you're hitting a ceiling, I like to call it a plateau, right? You've hit a point where you need to change something to create a stimulus for change. Our brain gets used to certain things. If you do the same thing over and over and over again, yeah, you've learned it and you've learned it well, but you're not going to get to the next level. So think about a concert pianist, right? They are going to start out not very good, right? They're going to start out at, you know, three, four, five, six, seven. You can start later in life too, but there's, it sounds pretty bad. It's hitting wrong notes. It's not understanding all the keys, not understanding the tempo, but then you start learning tempo. You start learning scales. You start learning rhythm. And so you're layering all these foundations on to become this amazing pianist down the road. So I think of kids like that, you got to start layering all these different areas to really reach the next level. So each time you master a skill, you've technically hit a plateau, and now you add a new thing, add a new thing, challenge yourself some more, some more, some more, right? You don't get to be the best at anything unless you challenge yourself. So that's what we do a lot in the therapies is we challenge these kids by throwing in new stimulus, new stimulus, new activity, new exercise to continually push them to more and more and more. So I think that's the beauty of what we've created with our programming is we're seeing these kids thrive because we're never saying, oh, that's good enough, right? Oh, you're here. You've got that skill. Okay, that's it. We're done, right? We're continually pushing for more and more and more and more and more, right? 
So like Brooklyn says, there is no ceiling. If there's a ceiling, you've just limited that child. You've set the, closed the lid on that box and they are now stuck. So blow the lids off the boxes and let's keep going way up high. Sky's the limit and keep going into outer space and beyond, right? Right? Like Buzz Lightyear, you know, to infinity and beyond. The, the kids have limitless potential. So I think that's the phrase for us is to infinity and beyond. There is nothing these kids can't do with the right team surrounding them. Yeah, I fully agree. And I would even expand that to our adult clients as well. There is no ceiling. We have a ceiling on our building, but that doesn't mean that the ceiling on their potential to recover function, mobility, strength, cognition, all of the things that we talk about and work for in neuro recovery. All right, Brooklyn, what can limit developing or increasing cognition? Or are there things that can limit it? That's a great question. So we did touch on it briefly when we mentioned that degenerative conditions can influence cognitive abilities. So other conditions like seizures, for example, that actually cause damage to our brains, they damage the connection in our brains. Obviously, conditions that cause literal physical damage that affects those connections, that will uh, influence our ability to increase our cognitive abilities. Other things could be negative assumptions or limiting beliefs, which we also uh, touched on. Having a consistent environment where the support network around the child is also working towards increasing uh, that cognition. So they're speaking to them in a way where we assume that they understand. So this is also attitudes plays a role as well. Yeah, you touched on some great points there. Seizures is something that I think a lot of people underestimate the power behind. So really getting on a good drug regimen if you need it, or finding a way in which, you know, the best diet. I know a lot of people go on keto. This is by no means advice dealing with seizures at all. But there's a lot of different things that you can do to help reduce the effect on of seizures on that development because seizures are something like Brooklyn just said can be very harmful to the brain development that cognitive development and the physical development as well and I love what you said about attitudes environment assumptions those really can hinder that cognitive ability as well all right so let's jump into how can parents caregivers or those around the child help facilitate autonomy and growth in the home environment so what can people do in their own home to help foster and facilitate increased cognition? Brooklyn. This is a great question. There's lots and lots of things that you can do to facilitate that autonomy and growth. So this could be a number of things, including what we say is speaking to your child as if they understand, giving them choice throughout their days, even small choices or yes or no's, and taking space and time and seeing how they react, keeping in mind that their processing time may be a little bit longer. So giving them space and uh, time to react and looking for those reactions in a number of different ways, whether that's silence can be a reaction. So if there's silence when you're asking them something and they're usually quite verbal or vocal, that is a sign to you as well. So lots of different ways where you can watch their body and just learn how they react to you. And this takes time to build that trust and understanding with any child. So building that personal connection and just looking and listening 
Another way you can facilitate growth in the home environment is something that we've said in other podcasts, which is challenging your children in their home environment and various environments. So giving them ample opportunity to explore and interact because this is where most learning occurs is when children are curious and when they're exploring every day. That's where they acquire more and more knowledge and skills. Do you have anything, any other uh, suggestions for parents, Nancy? Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to say that parents are a lot of the time the best at doing this. And a lot of parents, you know, even the simple game of playing peekaboo with their child or getting in their face and, you know, being the tickle monster, being really loud and expressive, like those are all really great ways which you can help foster that growth. I think another way might seem really simple, but sometimes overlooked is in the activities of daily living. So, during diaper change, getting them involved, you know, if they're past that six months that you can be like, hey, we're trying to change your diaper, we need legs up or legs down or like help lift your bum, like all those little things, or even something like dressing, right? You're like, hey, we're going to take your shirt off now and you pull your arm down or put your arms through the hole and we're going to put your other arm through the hole, right? Just making it less of a mystery, just talking them through everything that's going on because we learn through watching, looking. And that's another way too is demonstrating, right? Being like, hey, we're going to do this now. We're going to have your sibling show you what we're going to do. They're going to walk up the stairs. Now you're going to walk up the stairs, right? We're doing it together, making it a family activity, getting them involved and surrounded by everybody, I think can also help too. Uh, We love sibling involvement. I think too, having a child with a disability, the siblings can sometimes feel left out as well. So making them feel important and in charge of this one activity can also help just kind of bring everybody back into feeling important and at the center of attention again as well. So just a couple of small things that you can be doing within the home environment. I think Brooklyn said it well is talk to them as if they can understand. That's always my biggest piece of advice to every family. And you'd be surprised how they start responding and reacting to that as well. Yeah, those are lots of really great points. I love your suggestion of incorporating it into acts of daily living, especially if you've got lots of changes in the day. That's lots of learning opportunities. That's great. All right. Well, thanks, Brooklyn, for joining us for this podcast. I think it's really important to talk about cognitive ability. And a lot of times cognition gets overlooked in terms of Everybody's always going for those physical milestones, but I think the developmental cognitive milestones are, if not more important than the physical milestones in terms of giving the child more meaning in their life and the families more understanding behind their child as well. So is there anything else you want to add that we've missed throughout this podcast? No, nothing that comes to mind, but I will say... um wholeheartedly 100% agree with what you just said there. What I will say is one of the, one of my favorite things that you said today was neuroplasticity is not just about physical development. It is about cognitive development. And I think that is a huge takeaway that a lot of people overlook. And so being willing to bend that mind a little bit is uh, really exciting. And one thing that I do love about the work we do. So thank you for all of your great insight and advice for everybody out there. Yeah, thanks so much, Brooklyn. And we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. 
As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.